Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. And my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. Good morning. If you have a Bible, please open it with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We are going to continue our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. A new king has come. What does life with him look like? What does life in the kingdom of God actually look like? So this morning, we're going to journey through a popular passage of scripture called the Beatitudes. And what we're going to do is I'm going to read them, and then I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can reply back, thanks be to God, and then I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. But we're in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask him for help right now. Father, we echo what the psalmist says. Our souls cling to dust. But give us life according to your word. Father, there is tremendous freedom in the Beatitudes. This is a rescue mission for our hearts. So God, I pray that your spirit would recalibrate us. Lord, we are chasing the good life. And I pray that we would have our eyes opened to see what your son is inviting us into this upside down kingdom. God, I pray that you would work on every single one of us, that we would be changed because we have encountered your spirit. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What does the good life look like for you? So if you're saying, oh, I'm flourishing, I really feel alive, I'm nailing it, I'm in my pocket, what does that look like? What, what do you wish you had more time to do? So if, if you had more time to carve out to do something, what would that be? Or when all is said and done and you're at the end of your life and you're looking back and you say, okay, I lived a life with no regrets. What does that life look like? Karen Swallow Pryor, she's an English professor at a school on the East Coast, and she invites her students to think through that question. And not only think through the question of what is the good life look like for you? Because we all have a perception of the good life that we are chasing after. What does the good life look for you? Professor Swallow Pryor wants her students to go a little bit deeper. 
She's trying to ask them the question, hey, you have a vision of the good life. Where did you get that? And she thinks that college students are the perfect people to ask this question of. Think about it. They're just coming of age. They're coming into their own. They've left home behind. And they're, they've left their friends. They're in a new season of life. They're asking these questions. Maybe they're starting to, for the first time, realize that, oh, you know what? I had an idea of what the good life looks like. But that was largely influenced by my parents, by the adults in my life. You know, I'm willing to go to school and take out all this student loan because I think that that degree buys me something. Well, what am I really chasing after? You know, we're influenced by our parents, the adults in our life. We're influenced by our friends. Now, when you're in college, you leave those friends behind. You have new friends. More and more today also, we're influenced by social media, selling us pictures of the good life, and all we have to do is double-click. What do you want your life to look like, and who told you that was the good life? Uh, professor Swallow Pryor uh, as being an English professor, she takes her students to a story that illustrates the tragedy of not asking those questions, of just chasing the good life without ever asking, where did I get this idea of that this is the good life? And so she takes them to the story, The Death of a Salesman. It's a, it's a book you probably pretended to read in about 10th grade, written by Marilyn Monroe's third husband. So if anybody knows about chasing the good life, it's Arthur Miller. And he takes us on a journey of a man named Willie Loman. And Willie Loman was this outdoorsman. He loved being outside. He lived in New York City, and he complained that Brooklyn was just getting overdeveloped. Brooklyn used to be the place where there were snakes and bees and bugs. Now there's just buildings. So this is, he's taking us back to a different time for sure. But Willie Loman was an outdoorsman, and early on in his career, he met this man who he thought was just living the good life. He met a salesman, and this salesman was well-liked. Everybody loved this salesman. He was so good. He'd just pick up the phone. He'd make calls. He'd make the sales. Uh, he'd go out to lunch with people. Uh, Willie Loman talked about how he would just slide into those green slippers that were beneath his desk, make sales, and be well-liked. When he died, Willie Loman said he died the death of a salesman. New York City had to shut down. All these trains couldn't get to their destination because so many people, hundreds and hundreds of people, gathered to mourn the loss of this man. And so Willie Loman figured out, if I want to live the good life, I need to be well-liked. And so who I am doesn't fit up, measure up to that. I can't be good with my hands and be well-liked. People don't respect that. They respect the salesman. And so Willie started just looking at scorn on the place he came from. I mean, he was a guy who spent a ton of energy with his kids building their front stoop, trying to sh show them how, the value of working with their hands. And now he was working as a salesman, pouring all his energy into that. And as you can imagine, when you're chasing somebody else's vision of the good life, you're probably not going to be great at it. So Willie Loman, at the end of his life, gets fired from his job, a job that he had put so much energy into, he completely ostracized his family. So the play ends with a man who dies, no salesman, not a salesman at all, and with no family. And his son, while lamenting his father's death, said he lived a total lie. He said that there was more of my father 
in that front stoop than in any sale he ever made. Willie Loman spent his energy chasing the good life, but it was somebody else's good life. Willie Loman didn't know there was another way. The Beatitudes, the passage that we just read, scream loud and clear, there is another way. This, there is a new way to approach the good life. And it's nothing that any of us are expecting. Nobody would define the good life like Jesus does. It's totally different from how we operate in the world. We live in a world that's survival of the fittest. But the good life, according to Jesus, said, looks like being poor in spirit, mourning, humble, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And we start to see that this Jesus is totally different from anything we've ever seen. It's upside down. And by inviting you into this upside down kingdom, Jesus is inviting you to a whole new way to pursue flourishing and to pursue the good life. And here's what he's saying. The Beatitudes. Beatitudes is a, an old Latin word that means blessing. That's what these statements are. They're nine blessings. These nine blessing statements, these Beatitudes, rescue you. They rescue you from the normal way of having to do things. They rescue you from having to fight to matter. They rescue you from having to fight to be seen. The Beatitudes rescue you from having to fight for power, to fight for your space. And they invite you into this kingdom that's actually worth living for. Jesus invites you from what you're doing into a place that's actually worth living and dying for. And he does this all by grace. We need to first see that. We can't just try to like work our way into this kingdom. We need to first see that the entrance into this kingdom is only always and forever by grace. These beatitude statements are a proclamation of God's favor. That he is giving out grace to those who don't deserve it. So that's what we need to see first. We need to see, first see is it, that there's an invitation here in these Beatitudes. It's an invitation to receive the grace of this upside-down king. Receive the grace of the upside-down king. And then, only then, only after we've received it, can we then grow into these values. Grow into the values of the upside-down kingdom. See, if we try to get that backwards, we'll totally miss this kingdom. But if we first receive the grace of the upside-down king, we now can grow into the values of the upside-down kingdom, which will show you that you have a future that is so secure. It's so secure that actually the future is so secure, it gives new meaning to your life in the present, which helps you live confidently. You can live confidently in a kingdom that's worth dying for. It gives you something to aim at, and that something is worth living and dying for. Let's first look at that grace, the grace of the upside-down king. Matthew has told us earlier, right before the Sermon on the Mount, he told us that Jesus was going around proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come near. It says in Matthew 4, 24, news about him, Jesus, spread all over Syria. Because in verse 23, excuse me, it said that he was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He was saying there is a change in administration. The kingdom of God has broken into the kingdoms of this world. 
And it's totally unlike how we've seen changes in administration go before. We've seen people fight for power. Think about the 80s. In the 1980s, there was a drug cartel that controlled 80% of the world's cocaine. And this was the 80s. Everybody was on cocaine. So these people made $70 million a day. You know the cartel leader's name? His name is Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar had a small empire, $70 million a day. It's estimated that his cartel actually spent $1,000 a week, $1,000 a week on rubber bands to wrap the money in. So they made so much money, they had to spend a ton of money on rubber bands, and then they would just have warehouses of cash. Where, with all that cash, they lost about 10% of it because of water damage or rats. Okay? This is a massive empire. He was making so much money. Well, what happens when your empire grows and becomes more powerful? Other empires do not like that. And in this case, it's understandable. It's a reign of just total violence. But the Colombian government sought to shut this down. So we see two empires going at it. So what does Pablo Escobar do when he's trying to have power and another empire is trying to take that away? He hires a leftist extremist group who goes into Bogota with tanks and guns, and they hold the Supreme Court of Bogota, uh, of Colombia, hostage. And there was a ton of bloodshed before everything was done. But in the meantime, he took all the extradition papers. The U.S. wanted uh, Escobar, and he burned them. And he's like, I'm free. No problem. See, we, that's, how, that's how kingdoms get set up. We fight violence. Think about the French Revolution with Maximilien de Robespierre. My French-Canadian grandfather just rolled his eyes, but... He was, the, he was the mastermind behind the French Revolution. His goal was to overthrow monarchy and the ruling class. And he, he, he lived what people called a reign of terror. So if you questioned the revolution, if you didn't like the revolution, you were dead. That's how we've seen people establish power. That's how we've seen people establish kingdoms. Now Jesus is here and he's saying the kingdom of God has come near. And how does he establish this kingdom? There's no tanks. There's no guns. There's no bombs. It's actually the total opposite. It's totally upside down from what we've seen. I have to matter. I need power. Jesus actually goes to the people you would least expect it. Remember the crowds. Remember that Jesus went around in in chapter 4. It says this. Healing those who suffered from uh, various diseases and pain, the demon-possessed, those experiencing seizures, and the paralyzed. Think about this with me for a second, all right? I want you to imagine that you are a resident of first-century Palestine, and you had a tragic accident as a child. You're paralyzed. This is an honor-shame culture. This is a culture where it says, hey, Go out and don't come back till you make a name for the family. You're paralyzed. Do you think you have access to resources? Do you think you're bringing in goods for your family? Do you think people are excited when they see you crawling toward them? No. 
This is totally shameful. And there's no social net. There's no social safety system. So it's not like anyone else is taking care of you. Your family has to take care of you. So instead of you going out and helping your aging parents, your aging parents have to work and take care of you. And in an honor-shame society, that is just a shameful event all the way up and all the way down. People see mom and dad working, and it's like, oh, it's because they have that paralyzed child. Totally shame-filled. And, and you're thinking, well, wait, 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 wait. Not all the crowds were paralyzed or sick or, or all these things. Look, it says in chapter 4, it says that some people brought their, their sick friends to Jesus. So certainly, look, some of the people were healthy in the crowd. Yes, but this is still an honor-shame culture. Imagine with me that your brother is demon-possessed. So you're trying to go to the market. You're trying to buy and sell. And as you come, this guy is coming with you who bites people, who howls at the moon, and who randomly runs into the ocean. No one is going to be excited to see you coming. No one wants to do business with you. You're cut off as well. And that's who Jesus goes to to announce his kingdom. He goes to people with absolutely nothing to offer him. He goes to the absolute least of these. Can you imagine that? It says this. It says that large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis, Jerusalem, all over the place were coming to him. So he sees the large crowds and he starts to teach. This would have been awfully smelly. This is not glamorous. Jesus is going to people that society has pushed out who says they don't matter, they're in the way. And hear what Jesus says. Blessed, 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 blessed. This is relentless. He is going after them saying, God's favor rests on you. This is wild. This is the grace of the upside down king. We don't do this. We live in a place that's survival of the fittest. Dog eat dog. Like uh, the book, The Art of War, it says that, hey, the goal of war is to bring your enemy into submission. The best way to do that is without fighting. And we're like, that's super nice. You're still trying to bring your enemy into submission. You're still trying to say, I need to get mine. And Jesus goes with people with nothing to offer. And he says, I have good news for you. What's he doing? Why is he doing that? Well, it's a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 61. He said this. This is Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Blessed are the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Blessed are those who mourn. And to proclaim freedom from the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In Luke's gospel, Luke kicks off Jesus' public ministry by saying Jesus stood up in in the synagogue and read this passage and said, This is about me. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus just goes public with it. He says, I have come to bring good news. Good news. The gospel is good news, not good advice. These people would have been coming to him for good advice. They were the people that were pushed out of society. They were out on the edges. And now he's healed them. 
He's taking care of their problems. And so they were looking to a rabbi to say, okay, what do we do now? We've just, we're, we're finally trying to get our way back into society, back into culture. And so give us advice to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You've already taken care of the healthy part. You've healed us. Now how do we be wealthy and wise? How do we make it work in this culture? And he doesn't give them good advice. Don't turn the Beatitudes into a standard. Like, if I do this, I will get blessed. These aren't a standard. This is God bringing good news to the absolute least of these. And that's fantastic news if you're one of the least of these. It means that you matter to God. It means that society, when they they see you and they say you don't matter, the one who matters sees you and says you do matter. But this is very sobering if you're religious. If you're someone who's been trying to earn God's blessing through effort, if I do this, God will bless me. Now you look and you see God coming and he's blessing people who don't deserve it at all. And that's sobering. Because you can't manipulate this king. You can't say, well, I did what you want. Now I need mine. He's just blessing people as he sees fit. The gospel is good news for the least of these. And it's sobering news for the religious among us. We can't earn our way into this kingdom. He gives away grace. He gives away blessing. And he does it on his own terms. Here's what happens when you come face to face with the message of the Beatitudes. You have to admit your need. You have to realize he is the one who calls the shots He's the one saying, here's what grace looks like. Here's what the blessed life looks like. And you have to say, okay, I'm coming to you on your terms. And the invitation of the Sermon on the Mount, of these Beatitudes, is an invitation to admit your need. And when you admit your need, what happens? You receive this blessing. You find that the people you thought you were so much better than, you're actually just like them, in great need of rescue. And here's what happens. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are spiritually bankrupt. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you admit your poverty, does he shame you? Does he say, knew it? He gives you the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom This truly is good news. And in order for something to be news, if something is news, it it has to actually change stuff. So we spend a lot of our times on our phones looking at the news, and a lot of the news has no impact on the way any of us do a lot of things. We're just trying to keep up. So if news isn't changing anything, if, if you hear something and nothing changes as a result of it, it's not actually news It's just trivial, okay? It's just trivia. And so this news of the kingdom that's come actually does change things. It gives us a whole new value system. It gives the people of God something else to look forward to. It gives them a new target to aim at. And here's what he's saying. Once you receive the grace of this upside-down king and see that he is just gracious, he is offering the kingdom to, to those who have nothing, 
Now what the invitation to do is to grow into the values of this upside-down kingdom. Grow into the values of this upside-down kingdom. And I had my own epiphany about what this looks like last week. I think uh, I just have read a lot, and I, you know, I sometimes enter into arguments saying like, okay, I know more than this person. I will just give them all this facts, and I will win this argument. End of story. You're welcome. Wow, that was fantastic. And I was listening to a podcast with Dax Shepard, and Dax is a writer and director, and he was talking about an experience that he had uh, where he was at the airport, and he he bumped into a friend at the airport. And, you know, they met at the baggage check-in station, and they started kind of arguing about something. They started going back and forth. Oh, yeah, well, you think this. Oh, yeah, well, if that's true, then you think this. And they were going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And this argument took place from the baggage area all the way to the gate, from the gate all the way into the airport, and they're just into the plane. They're going back and forth. They're sitting a few rows away from each other, and they're just bickering. Well, if you think this, well, I can't believe you're so dumb. You think this. Back and forth. So finally, Dax just puts in his headphones and pretends to go to sleep. And And he realized something. He said, oh, my gosh, in this moment, He thinks he's won the argument. I'm out of things to say, and he's won. But in reality, he just wore me out. I'm just totally tired of talking to him. Here's what I realize. I just wear people out. I'm not changing hearts and minds. I'm not like, yeah, but you need to know about this and this and this. And they're like, wow, that was so helpful. I think the way I was living was not right. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to make all these adjustments. Thanks. I just, Chris Voss, he was a, he's an FBI negotiator, so it was his job to, someone took a hostage, he would come in and negotiate with a hostage taker. He wrote a book about how to negotiate, and he has a tactic that sometimes negotiators use. It's called bulldozing. Maybe you've been bulldozed. So there's a situation that bulldozing looks like, uh, where it's like, hey, here's what we're doing, and you're absolutely going to like it. End of story. Thank you very much. It's a negotiating tactic, which Mr. Voss wants to steer you away from. It's not super effective. Well, if we're going to grow into the values of this upside-down kingdom, I think it's an invitation to take the keys out of our bulldozer. Take the keys out of our bulldozer. Why? Because this king, with real power, comes to people with real need, who, ha- who are also, in many ways, very wrong. And does he bulldoze them? No. He comes and announces God's favor on them. Why? Because the kingdom of God isn't won by arguments. The kingdom of God isn't won by being right. The kingdom of God is won through love. Jesus saw people and he loved them. And so for us as people in this kingdom, how can we just bulldoze everybody? We're Because uh, we do that because we're not operating in the values of this new kingdom. We've brought the old kingdom into this new kingdom. And actually, we betray that we still think like the old way of thinking all the time. Just think about, maybe you've heard people say things like this. Oh, I look at the world, and is the, is the kingdom of God even doing anything? The kingdom is totally lost. The kingdom of God isn't even here. Why? Because we're looking for what the old kingdom, the right side up kingdom would look for. Are we in power? Do we, ha- do we have all these things? Do we, are we in control? Are we in power? Because if we're in power, if we're in control, then we're winning. And Jesus says, not in this kingdom. 
This kingdom goes to the least of these, loves them, goes to the undeserving, showers them with grace. It's upside down. This kingdom is not about being right. This kingdom is about redemption. This kingdom is about rescue. And this is what rescue looks like when it breaks into your life. And look, this can't just stay with your relationship with God. The, the, the Beatitudes want to break out into your whole life. We talked about change. These Beatitudes break out into the rest of your life. Look at all these Beatitudes. Think about this for just a second. Uh, blessed are the merciful. Verse, verse 7. Can you be merciful by yourself? No. Being merciful implies that you were wronged by somebody. Being merciful implies that somebody wronged you and you didn't reply with your bulldozer. You operated with this new kingdom value. Don't turn that into a standard, by the way. Don't say, oh, if I want to get blessing, I need to be a peacemaker. If I want to get blessing, I need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is not a standard of do this to be blessed. This is an announcement of grace, an announcement of favor, an announcement of blessing. And then once we see who the, what he's doing, who he's blessing, we grow into him. This kingdom is for those who recognize their need. And then they start to, once they recognize their own need, they start to recognize the need of others. People don't need you to be right. These Beatitudes really do offer us rescue because it also gives you permission to be needy. You won't ever outgrow your neediness. You won't ever hit a place where it's like, well, I, I, got, I got into the kingdom because I was needy, and then I grew in the kingdom by not being needy. I grew by figuring it out for myself, pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. No, this kingdom keeps giving you a place to look. The starting point is your need, and you grow deeper into this kingdom because of your need. And it's hard. It's not easy. Like we talked about, blessed are the peacemakers. Think about how we do things. What do they call it? When you encounter conflict, there's two types of people, fight or flight. Okay? What is fight? That's the bulldozer, right? And then what, what would flight like this passage to read? The flight people would like it to say, blessed are the conflict avoiders. It's really difficult to once you recognize your need and you recognize the needs of others, it's painful sometimes stepping into those spaces. There's risk of being misunderstood. There's risk of your own reputation being damaged. But when we see that these beatitudes come to a person who loved the least of these, who didn't storm the palace with his gun, but went to the least of these, we now can say, I can risk my reputation. I can risk being misunderstood because this is worth it. You don't outgrow your neediness to live like that. That's hard. That's difficult. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous pastor in London in the last century, uh, once said about the Sermon on the Mount, if we really understand the Sermon on the Mount and its message, our prayer becomes, God, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. 
Look at verse 8 real quick. Blessed are the pure in heart. Who here can say that? Blessed are the meek. Would people who know you well describe your life as hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Have you ever been persecuted because of righteousness? When we start to really dive into these Beatitudes, we actually start to feel that need. We start to feel the need that I'm not this. I'm, I'm not. I, I mean, I've had seasons where I've been humble. You know, like the one time someone thought they recognized me and I, you know, played it cool. But this isn't my life. This isn't how I live. And so you start to get it. Now you're starting to experience, blessed are the poor in spirit. You have needs. You don't naturally live this way. This is the upside down kingdom. Oh, and by the way, just because you embrace this, you're not going to naturally be this overnight. That's why I think it's an invitation to grow into these values. Grow into. We live, don't blame, I'm just going to say this. I am, a, I am a millennial, and I'm sick and tired of millennials taking blame for ruining everything, okay? I'm just going to say that. Do not blame me because we live in an instant society. Oh, everything's so instant for you millennials. You, know, you got your instant email, okay? If you're a baby boomer, Y'all got the microwave, okay? And the microwave changed everything. Now dinner became instant, okay? So not just me, you too. We all live in this instant society, this instant culture. Give it to me, give it to me now. And there is a sense of patience. There's a sense of growing into these values. Listen, listen to the promise of, these, of the Beatitudes. Ready? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. They will be filled. They will be shown mercy. They will. This is a future thing that's going to happen. We can see that these things aren't going to just instantly take place. Suffering doesn't go away overnight. And your suffering won't have meaning to you overnight. Here's what the invitation of the sermon on, on, of these Beatitudes is. It's saying this. You have a future that's secured and that breathes new meaning into your present. So you can live confidently. You can live confidently. You don't have to just be hanging on by a thread. You can live confidently in this kingdom. It's actually worth dying for. You can live confidently because the future is secured. It doesn't say, blessed are those who mourn, for they cry a lot. Blessed are the meek, because they're so humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Isn't it great how hungry and thirsty they are? It doesn't say that. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Suffering doesn't make sense when you're in the middle of it. But here's the invitation, too, of the sermon. The sermon, Matthew's book, starts with a sermon on the mount. We see Jesus' life that leads to a cross. And then after that cross, we see a new creation people coming into being. Here's what that's pointing us to. Jesus' suffering didn't make 
any sense. He was a totally innocent person. He was the God man. He was righteous. He was innocent and he was good. So we killed him. And look at the good that came out of that new creation, new life, rescue, redemption. And on the surface, it seemed like foolishness. The Apostle Paul says, here's what here's the promise of these Beatitudes. Your suffering in the kingdom isn't meaningless. The one who matters sees your suffering and he will undo it. Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who hunger and thirst will be filled. He is meeting your suffering where it is and he's undoing it. And that's going to happen. And you can trust that it's going to happen because his suffering looked totally meaningless, just like your suffering looks totally meaningless, and he changed the world through his suffering. Here's the promise of the Sermon on the Mount. You can have hope. Look, suffering permeates, it permeates the Beatitudes. Being poor, mourning, humble, longing, all those things are uh, just about suffering. Please, please do not have a cavalier attitude towards suffering. I get that temptation. I do. Especially it's like, oh, blessed are the poor in spirit. I love being poor in spirit. It's fantastic. Suffering is suffering because it's suffering. Okay? Think about that logic for a second. Suffering is suffering. If you like it, it's not suffering. Okay? The Sermon on the Mount anticipates living in a broken world with suffering. But it's not the last word. The last word is what the kingdom of God restores to sufferers. And look, they're all future. They will, they will, they will, except for the bookends. The bookends say this. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's as good as done. You can be confident. He's taken care of the future for you. I have a good friend who gave me the privilege of walking through suffering with him. Uh, he had a really important job, and there was a business merger, and totally unexpectedly, he lost his job. So he lives in one of the most expensive cities in the country. He had a job that, like, it was a pretty impressive job. He was through this job in very impressive places that I was just like, who are you? Why are you friends with me? And he lost his job unexpectedly one day. And on the phone, he called me and said, can I think this out loud with you? Can I just talk about what I'm feeling with you? I said, yeah, totally. He said, I am afraid. I'm afraid that I've lost my job, and so I just want to tell you, I want to walk through those fears with you. I want to tell you, hey, here's what I'm afraid is the worst thing that could happen, okay? So I've lost my job. I have no income. I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my house, that I'm going to have to just l just move out of our house. We're going to lose our house, okay? That's, that's the worst thing that could happen. And then if that worst thing that can happen happens is, man, we're going to have to move in with my parents, and that's going to be a tremendous stressor on our, our relationship. And so I'm afraid that if I move in with my parents, it's going to hurt my relationship, and maybe we'll get a divorce. Okay? That's the worst that could happen. 
And then if we get a divorce, I'm sure I'm going to be depressed. And I'm just going to be just living a life that's not fantastic and great at all. And I'm going to just live lonely and miserable. And then I'm going to die cold and alone. That's the worst that can happen. I said, okay. And then he said to me, and Jesus has taken care of the worst that can happen. If I die, he's bought me a future that's secure. So now I can reverse engineer my suffering. I can say, okay, so if he's taking care of this over here, can I trust him over here? I think over here was having to move in with mom and dad. If I can trust him that he'll take care of me because he's going to take care of me if I die, he's gonna, that's the worst that could happen. He's going to take care of me if I have to live with mom and dad, which would be pretty terrible. Okay. And I can trust him if my wife leaves me and my kids hate me. Yes. I can trust him because he's taken care of the worst thing that can happen. You need to reverse engineer your suffering. Suffering is kind of like whitewater rafting without a boat. You're just in the water. Just, ah, everything's coming at you. You have no idea what's happening. Reverse engineering it lets you, okay, what am I afraid of? What's happening? What's coming my way? And then speaking truth to yourself. I'm poor in spirit right now. That's awful. Oh my gosh. If people see me weak like this, oh, people aren't going to like me and they're going to push me out. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay. He's taken care of me. I am needy and he's taking care of my deepest needs. I can trust him in the now. I don't know what that's going to look like. It's still suffering. It's still scary. I don't mean to trivialize. Oh, it's super easy to suffer. Just follow these steps. But you can have confidence in the midst of your suffering. You can have hope that this is not the end. There's a future and it is secure. You can also know that your suffering comes from someone who doesn't waste suffering. He doesn't waste suffering. His son died and look at what that bought. So you can be confident that he won't waste your suffering either. And when we start to live in this upside down kingdom, When we start to live, instead of starting at the top and fighting to stay at the top, but learning to know God in our need, and that he meets us in our need, and we start to experience grace in the moment, that helps us both live confidently, and it helps us grow into these values, which helps us receive this grace. Even living this out is receiving this grace. You won't be abandoned by this God. And doing so helps slowly start to recalibrate what you think the good life is. What you wish you had time for. When you have a God who meets you where you are and loves you and, and really just meets the deepest needs you have. And as wretched as you are all the way down to the bottom, he loves you. When you've experienced that grace, that redefines how you interact with other people. It redefines the good life. Henry David Thoreau once famously said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. The Beatitudes offers a new way. It's totally different. It's upside down. It's unlike anything that we have done. But just like Willie Loman didn't know there is another way, now we know there is another way. There is rescue for those who suffer. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son who came and brought good news 
Good news to the poor. Good news to those who mourn. Father, I pray that we would respond in humble gratitude, that we would not fight for our rights, fight to be seen, but we would receive this kingdom from your son, and that that would help us live confidently in this broken world. And ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.